Amen. Well, friends, this morning we're on a new series, uh, a series we're calling Fifth Gospel. We're going to look through the book of Isaiah. This series is actually going to take us uh, all the way up until the week before Palm Sunday. And so uh, a number of weeks here uh, in looking at Isaiah. And I do want to encourage you uh, throughout this series to spend some time reading Isaiah. We're only going to cover uh, a few of the passages uh, through the book. We're going to go from beginning to end and we'll hit different parts throughout. Uh, but there's a lot that won't be covered in the scripture readings each Sunday in the sermons. And so I encourage you to spend some time uh, reading and looking at uh, that important book. Uh, you'll see online, actually, if you go out to the website, johnknox.church, uh, you'll find there uh, some resources for the sermon series so that you can study at home or also participate in groups. And so you'll see different free curriculums that are available online that are actually very, very good, excellent curriculums to take a look at. So in life, there's a lot of names that we can be called. Uh, people call me Jimmy. I wasn't always called Jimmy. I was actually in fifth grade. I had a fifth grade teacher uh, who said Jimmy is a little kid's name and you're now going to be called Jim. And so I, from fifth grade on, I was referred to as Jim and sometime in college, uh, there was a renaissance of the name Jimmy. I had a good friend whose name was Cameron. His actual real name was John, but his middle name was Cameron. He went by Cameron. And he started calling me Jimmy, and I took a liking to that. And so I readopted, uh, reacquainted myself with the name Jimmy. I thought as I was working with middle schoolers and, and whatnot, they seemed to latch on the name Jimmy more so than Jim. And so from then on, I, I went by Jimmy once more. Of course, during that period is when I met my, my wife, which was after uh, college and, and well on. So she only has known me as Jimmy. And so when I go back to family events, they sometimes they'll refer to me as Jim, uh, but she only knows me as Jimmy. Uh, and that's a nickname that I've gotten uh, reacquainted with in the year. So not all names are bad names that we might get called. Uh, we get nicknames from friends, uh, like my friend Cameron, who called me Jimmy. Uh, we get affectionate names from those uh, who love us, uh, maybe our parents or our, uh, even a spouse or a partner uh, might have an affectionate name for us. We might even have names uh, that stem from a title. I know sometimes you'll see folks that have received a PhD or maybe they're a medical doctor and people call them doc. And you'll see that quite a bit. Or maybe there's something about your birth order gets you a name. You hear people that are called junior. Uh, I knew one guy named junior who was called JR uh, as part of that uh, junior name. And of course, there's attributes where people get called uh, based on some particular physical attribute they have. You might call someone lefty if they're left-handed. Uh, you might have a friend who's uh, really tall, and they call him tiny, right? So there's the opposite effect there. And so some names are more flattering than others, but we have all these different nicknames that circulate around in our, our world. Well, here's, here's a name you don't want to be called, all right? So if you have a, uh, an affectionate name or a name that you want to be called, this is one you don't want to be called. Rulers of Sodom people of Gomorrah. You do not want to be called those things. If you're familiar with the Bible at all, you'll know that the association speaks of judgment and total destruction of two cities wherein what befell a people who were known for their wickedness. Long ago and long before Isaiah's vision, uh, there's a story that we have in, in Genesis 18 about a man named Abraham. And Abraham here in Genesis 18 is visited by uh, three figures. Uh, they're, de they're described as being men in the passage, uh, but we're supposed to see them as being something more uh, based on the very first line of Genesis 18, talking about the Lord visiting with Abraham. And during that visit, it's where they uh, prophesy uh, to Abraham and Sarah. They share that you're going to have a child. Uh, you're actually going to give birth to a biological child. And you'll remember at that time that both Abraham and Sarah are well past childbearing years. And so the idea of having a child seems rather ridiculous. 
And Sarah actually gives the response that I think many of us uh, really makes sense to us. She laughs. She says, how can that be? How is that even possible? But the promise that was given was real, and we'll see that that uh, comes uh, to effect later on. Well, as their visit concludes, as the story goes in Genesis 18, Abraham learns about a judgment that's going to befall the people of Sodom and Gomorrah. If you'll remember in that passage that uh, he actually contends or he pleads on, be, on their behalf, and we'll talk about that a little bit in, uh, later here in the sermon. Um, but there's two verses in Genesis 18 that I found particularly striking as we read Isaiah 1. So it's, I thought these were important verses for us to see. There's two verses in Genesis, one right after the other, that creates a contrast of the people of Abraham, or the descendants of Abraham, and the people of Sodom and Gomorrah. And you'll see that in verses 19 and verse 20. Verse 19, a reference to Abraham and his descendants, again in Genesis 18, and verse 20, the descendants, or who we might say the people, there's not descendants, they're wiped out, the people of Sodom and Gomorrah. Let's talk about Abraham and his people. Genesis 18, 19. Consider how Abraham and the people are described there. It says, I have chosen Abraham that he may charge his children and his household after him to keep the way of the Lord by doing righteousness and justice so that the Lord may bring about for Abraham what he has promised him. So Abraham has been chosen, all right? He's chosen here. And that word, that idea is Abraham has been known. He's been covenanted with. And as covenants go, there's particular responsibilities that are going to be demanded of Abraham uh, here in this text, but also as we look throughout the Torah. They're marks of fidelity. They're marks of faithfulness. A large part of these are captured in what the text describes as keeping the way of the Lord. And of course, the question here is what exactly does that way entail? Well, Torah scholar Aviva Gottlieb Zornberg uh, summarizes Jewish rabbinic teaching here when she states that this keeping is this. We are to resemble God. So she, she summarizes rabbinic teaching on this by simply saying, we are to resemble God. God's people are to resemble God. And an early rabbinic source, one that she actually draws on, will go a step further saying this, just as God is called gracious, so you be gracious. As God is called merciful, so you be merciful. Noting that righteousness and justice are qualities associated with God, we'll see that throughout the, the scriptures, Abraham and his descendants, in their resembling of God, are to be about such things. These are what they are to do. This is how God's people are to live. So righteousness, zedekah in Hebrew, uh, and justice, mishpat, so these two terms that we find throughout the Hebrew Bible, or throughout the Jewish Bible, these are the ideas of living into these qualities. There will be a people who exercise kindness. There will be a people who do what is right, who look out for and take action on behalf of the vulnerable and the needy. You're to be people who treat others fairly, who treat people equitably. To be good people is what we might say here. What does it mean to be a good person? And here's the kicker. How they're doing this on this front can be evaluated. You can actually evaluate how someone is doing on this. You can actually measure that and see. You can measure a civilization on this note. Tim Keller writes in a book uh, 
called Generous Justice. And if you haven't had a chance to look at that book, I'd encourage you uh, to pick that up. It's a very much an accessible and readable book on this, this topic of mishpat, on justice, on how we as believers might live into that. And it's very short, uh, a very quick read, but an excellent read. But he does this. He identifies what he calls the quartet of the vulnerable, categories in the ancient world of people that would have been vulnerable in society. And in that quartet, he has folks like widows and orphans. He talks about immigrants and the poor. So these are people that don't have social capital or social power in the ancient world. In our world, we might say that folks in this lot would certainly uh, continue not to have social power, and they would certainly be vulnerable. But we might also add here additional categories, folks like the homeless or people who are migrant workers who only come for a season uh, to work. Again, they don't have the social power. uh, They don't have that capital to help, and it makes them vulnerable. It makes them vulnerable to injustice. It makes them vulnerable to oppression. How a society or a community treats these people is a major indicator as to whether or not that community is just. It's a just community or just society. Are they living righteousness and justice? You can measure that. You can be evaluated. Of course, one of the temptations here, and I, I, I know this temptation because I, I feel this as well when you come to texts like this, but one of the temptations is to explain away the indicators. One of the temptations is to justify my own lack or my own limiting of response here. Don't go to that place, right? Don't go to that place. Instead, if you're all wondering how serious we should take all of this or how serious righteousness and justice is to God, consider what the prophet Jeremiah writes in chapter 9 of his prophecy. He says, Thus says the Lord, Do not let the wise boast in their wisdom. Do not let the mighty boast in their might. Do not let the wealthy boast in their wealth. But let those who boast, boast in this, that they understand and know me, that I am the Lord. I act with steadfast love, that's Hebrew hesed, justice, there's mishpat, and righteousness, zedekah, right? There's the big big three there. In the earth. For in these things I delight, says the Lord. What does the Lord delight in? Delights in Mishpat, in Zedekah, and Hesed. Those are the big three. If that's what God delights in, what do you imagine an appropriate response of God's people would be when it comes to those categories? Well, there's an altogether different community. There's a different kind of people, again, in Genesis 18, that are described in verse 20. This verse 19 is the group that's supposed to be about justice and righteousness and following the way of the Lord or keeping the way of the Lord. What is this verse 20 group to be? The group's described as being Sodom and Gomorrah. And you'll hear in the text it says, How great is the outcry against Sodom and Gomorrah, and how very grave their sin. Very grave it must have been. Because when Abraham pleads with God to spare the cities, he says, spare the cities And he goes all the way down this count, if you remember the passage, and he gets down to if if ten righteous people can be found in that community, will you spare it? And God agrees. God says, I will spare the communities if ten righteous people can be found. Well, what we learn in Genesis 19 is that ten could not be found because the annihilation of those communities happens. And they're gone. But they're not forgotten. 
as these communities will forever be marked as the poster child for wickedness and injustice. And so by the time we arrive to Isaiah's day, we find that Abraham's descendants are no longer keeping the way of the Lord. They're no longer those people that Exodus 4.22 describes as God's firstborn, the sense of a, a family. They indeed are that by promise, but they're certainly not living that way. In fact, Isaiah will talk about how these children who were reared and brought up by God, you'll see that in the first part of chapter 1, are now in full rebellion. What does it say in verse 4? They've become a sinful nation, people laden with iniquity, offspring who do evil, children who deal corruptly, who have forsaken the Lord, who have despised the Holy One of Israel, who are utterly estranged. They have changed their position. So unrecognizable are they from the faithful people that God has called them to be, that our text this morning identifies his people not as descendants of Abraham, but rather rulers of Sodom, people of Gomorrah. Again, not a name you want to be called, but here's the name that these people have earned. The people have become a despised people. They're known by despicable names. I can imagine that folks in that original audience who hear this, particularly those who could be reflective and perhaps a bit introspective here at this moment, might say something like, we have met the enemy and he is us at that moment, that they would see that in themselves. Given the responsibility of living righteous and just lives, this people, according to verse 16, are marked by their own evil deeds and doing and are once more commanded in verse 17 to take up their covenant obligations, those same obligations that go all the way back to Genesis 18. Learn to do right, seek justice, defend the oppressed, take up the, take up the cause of the fatherless, plead the case of the widow. But what might be the most surprising, the most surprising thing about this entire episode is this. These are religious people. The people Isaiah is talking to are religious people. The nation has been doing the religious stuff. They've been sacrificing. They've been praying. We see this in the text. They've been observing and they've been gathering. But even so, this people have been just going through the motions. These leaders, who we might say of Sodom, and these subjects, the people of Gomorrah, have been going through the emotions alike, while at the same time not doing the stuff that they should have been doing all along. Perhaps they imagined that the practice itself would absolve them from responsibility, that their burnt offerings could create a kind of smokescreen uh, that might throw God off or might actually uh, create an excuse uh, for not having to do the actual hard work of justice and living righteously. But as it was then, it's the same now. Religiosity is no excuse for bad behavior. For some this morning, what might be even more surprising than that, that religious people would be in view here, but rather that God's response itself might be surprising. Calling the efforts of this people detestable, worthless, using things like, I hate, I cannot bear, I'm weary, I hide my eyes, I am not listening. That may not compute with the God you might imagine. We learn just outside our text in verse 7 
God says, your country lies desolate. Your cities are burned with fire. In your very presence, aliens devour your land. It is desolate as overthrown by foreigners. So clearly, what's happening to this nation at this moment is no stunt. Here, we don't see tacit approval from God for the people's hypocrisy. Instead, we see actual judgment. We see actual judgment has come to them. Amidst a cultural backdrop like our own, where prosperity doctrines flourish, I imagine that this picture of God seems rather off-putting to some. A picture of a God who doesn't want God's people to live hypocritical lives. But God's response here tells us something that we hear throughout Scripture, and it's this. God wants more for us. God wants something more for God's people. God wants something more for this creation. With this in mind, we see reasons for hope, even amidst what certainly must have been an incredibly painful and difficult ordeal. Sure, our text begins with the nation identified as Sodom and Gomorrah, a particularly striking tone when one notes what came of those two cities. Again, complete annihilation and destruction. It might have felt like that's what was happening now in real time at the time of this prophecy, that they were seeing their own destruction, their own complete and total annihilation. But hear what Isaiah writes in verse 9, one verse before our reading this morning. If the Lord of hosts had not left us a few survivors, we would have been like Sodom and become like Gomorrah. Those are words of a remnant. There's a remnant preserved here. But why? Why would God preserve a remnant? Why would God not wipe them completely out? We've already seen the description. They're living like the people of Sodom. They're living like the people of Gomorrah. Why would God not completely wipe them out? Well, again, it goes back to Genesis. It goes back to a promise. A promise that a faithful God has made to Abraham and Sarah. A promise that would relate to their descendants. A numerous bunch And these descendants here now are being drawn back to once more inhabit a different kind of life, a different kind of kingdom, one where righteousness and justice are commonplace, where we might eat the good of the land, as Isaiah says, and not be devoured by the sword. A change, of course, not only provides hope for future promise and not destruction, but also the promise of forgiveness which we hear in our text. Unlike the destruction of this people, the forgiveness would be total, would be complete, that God would offer it generously to them so that God's people might be, according to Isaiah 126, that they would be called, not Sodom and Gomorrah, but be called the city of righteousness, the faithful city. That's a far better identity and one that God is extending even now to us, extending to those who know themselves to be an unfaithful lot. That should be encouragement enough for the day, for each of us, for each and every day. So what do we do with all this? Well, I'm anticipating that in the coming weeks, uh, you're going to be hearing uh, more information coming about Uh, regarding a new ministry team 
We actually have a, a new team that uh, the session has put together, at least has called, and we're in the process of discerning the full charter of that team. The, the session is launching a ministry team that's going to help us as a congregation to keep justice in view so that we can be faithful together, that we might serve faithfully together. And so a charge is being written up and, and that group is going to be formed. But it's going to be a ministry team that's going to help uh, in some ways be, keep accountability, but also to find expression in our own community, in our own area, that we might live into uh, what it means to be righteous and just, that we together might be faithful to God. We might be a faithful expression of that. But what about for individuals? What about for each one of us? Well, let me give you a couple things here. One is this. Clearly, a moral inventory is in order. Clearly, a moral inventory is in order. We see that here in Isaiah. Religious people behaving badly, that can easily be you and that could easily be me. We can find ourselves in those places, that going through the motions. So we do well. We do well to consider where we might be at how we might be living. And so that's where the moral inventory comes in. Are we going through the motions? Have we constructed for us ourselves a faith that absolves us of any kind of responsibility to our neighbor? It's easy to do. It's easy to create those spaces and those places. I came across a list this past week of why, it was called Nine Reasons Christians Failed to Love Their Neighbors. They had these nine reasons. And reason number one was quite the hammer blow. Here was reason number one. We're believers, but not followers. We're believers, but not followers. Isaiah makes clear that God's people are to be followers. That we are, according to Genesis, to be followers of the way of the Lord. And God's grace makes that possible. So we do a moral inventory. We invite the Holy Spirit to show us, to reveal places in our life where we've given quarter uh, to lives that are unfaithful, expressions that are disobedient, um, where we've done forms of religion that might be called hollow mockery, where we allowed that to persist in our own lives. The second thing is this, at the same time, while we're doing our inventory, we are to be people committed to righteousness and justice. We need to be people that are committed to righteousness and justice. Galatians uh, chapter 3, verse 7 notes that those who believe are descendants of Abraham, even Gentiles, even Gentiles, non-Jewish people, can be descendants of Abraham. Why? Because we believe. Which I imagine inspired a rather obnoxious song from my childhood. Father Abraham had many sons. Many sons had Father Abraham. I am one of them, and so are you. And there's usually like arm movements and leg movements and spinning around and nodding heads and all that kind of thing until the whole room of kids passes out and falls down in chairs. I am one of them, and so are you. So let's just praise the Lord. Right arm, da -na 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 -na, and you go all the way through this song. But what if we had a different ending to that song? What if it wasn't about just praising the war Lord? What if we ended that song with, better yet, as a descendant of Abraham, let's just keep the way of the Lord by doing righteousness and justice? And so here, we ask the question how do we do this in an age that has become so polarized? It's become more and more isolated, more and more distant. And that's before the pandemic. How do we do that? How do we live this way? How do we live Zedekah and Mishpat? How do we become those people? Well, this weekend, and what I think is a help here uh, for discovering what that looks like and how practical that can be 
of an expression in our own lives, we are celebrating the life of one who is an incredible witness of the church, an incredible witness of Jesus Christ, and I might add here an outstanding countryman, the Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King. As we remember his life, we remember the witness that is uh, King and what he shared and what he spoke, not just the, the, we hear the I have a dream speech and we hear all those type of things, but to hear how, what he said and, and he, how he shared uh, the message of how one expresses righteousness and justice. I find uh, particularly inspiring words that he shared that were part of a message that he gave to a group in Memphis the day before he died. The night before he died, he was speaking, and at one point in the presentation, he draws on the, Jesus' parable the Good Samaritan. And there, King, what he does, he contemplates why the priest and the Levite do not stop to help the man in need. And here's what King said. He says, It's possible that the priest and the Levite looked over that man on the ground and wondered if the robbers were still around. Or it's possible that they felt the man on the ground was merely faking. He was acting like he had been robbed and hurt in order to seize them over there, lure them there for a quick, easy seizure. And so the first question that the priest asked, the first question the Levite asked was, if I stop to help this man, what will happen to me? Right? What will happen to me? I think we all ask that question. I think we do that a lot. But then the good Samaritan came by, and he reversed the question. If I do not stop to help this man, what will happen to him? What will happen to him? If we're to be people who are committed to righteousness and justice, if we're to be people that don't make the mistake that the people in Isaiah's day made, we need to be people who ask, what will happen to him? What will happen to the other person if I don't respond, if I don't live faithfully? We fail to take action. What will happen to them? Of course, we shouldn't kid ourselves that pursuing such a life comes without risk. We know that King was gunned down a day after he uttered these words. We know by tradition that Isaiah was chased down and was hiding in a tree when the tree was cut down and he was sawed in two. That's possibly the reference we hear in Hebrews 11, verse 37 of his death. There is a risk with living a just and righteous life. There is always a risk. But here's the thing. The cost might be great, but the reward is even greater. Lord, give us faith and strength that we might live a righteous and faithful life in this day and forever. Let us pray together. Lord, we thank you on this morning as we hear these words that they're challenging to us. They're challenging to to know that we're being called to something bigger and something better for not only our own lives, but for the lives of our neighbors. Lord, give us courage where we lack it. Thank you for the grace that upholds us and sustains us, that nurtures us, that calls us into this place. But Lord, help us to be a loving neighbor, not just a good neighbor to our community, but loving neighbors, that we would love our neighbor as you have called us to. Lord, thank you for the witness of Dr. King and for so many others who have risked their lives, who have given their lives for such a witness. May we be counted amongst the faithful like them. And we pray this in Jesus' name.